Let's pray. You are the all-wise God, and you have declared the things that are true in your word, and we give you thanks for that. And God, I ask that you would make us people who are submitted to the truth of your word, that we love righteousness, that we love the wisdom of the scriptures, that we abide in these things as we abide in Christ. And we thank you that wrapped up in your word is the truth of your love for us, that you have gone to great lengths to prove your love for us, to redeem us, to make us yours, and we worship you for that. So, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would bring ourselves to treasure it, to trust it, to be submitted to it, because we love you. In Christ's name, amen. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." So can we just acknowledge the insanity of these verses? I mean, think seriously for a second about what we just read. Consider it. Let's read it again so that it won't be lost on us. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I'm reading from the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. And uh, when they use the word servant here in verse 18, they're translating from the Greek word oikios or oiketai. And it means house slave or domestic slave. So the word servant doesn't quite get there in regards to who Peter's actually addressing. Peter is telling slaves to be subject to their masters. And this is a similar concept to what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The reason why it comes here is because it sort of fits in the discussion of 
people being subject to the authorities, that includes not only governments and emperors, but also masters and slaves. But Peter goes much further than just encouraging slaves to be subject to the master, doesn't he? Because he commands them, did you notice, to be subject to the master even when the master is unjust. Even when the master beats them for doing good, Peter says they should be subject still. Slaves must submit. He even says in verse 21 that Christian slaves who find themselves in the place of being slaves are called to this kind of obedience. I hear people talking about God's calling on their life a lot. Have you, you heard people talk about this? People will say God called them to do this or that kind of thing, right? Maybe God called them to go into business or God called them to go into ministry. But I've never heard anybody talk about how excited they are that God has called them to go into slavery or called them into suffering unjustly. But that's what Peter says. And it's teaching like, teachings like this in the Bible that in part for me are, are just one of the reasons why I am convinced that the Bible is not a book that was written by men. This is not the kind of thing, if you want to like win followers and start a religion and get a bunch of people fired up about an idea, this is not the kind of thing that you write. What person would make up a human religion that says to slaves, hey, look, if you're in slavery and you're being treated unjustly and you're getting beaten for doing good, keep at it because that's what God has in store for you. Show your master respect even when your life is defined by that kind of abuse. We don't easily accept teachings like this, do we? I mean, I think a lot of Christians these days would get to a verse like this in the Bible, and they would say, they would respond with something like this. They would say, well, you know, Jesus really wouldn't want us to be abused, right? Jesus would really want you to draw some boundaries in your life when it comes to people who treat you unjustly. Or maybe they would say something like, well, God certainly wouldn't want you to suffer, Right? Everybody knows that Jeremiah 29 verse that's in the, the home goods store. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And that's in the Bible, so I don't deny that. But that's the kind of advice that people give to one another, pretending that it's Christian. That like God just has in store for you blessing and prosperity and if you're suffering unjustly, then, you know, just put up some boundaries, put up some walls and get out of the situation. But the Bible, the divinely inspired wisdom of God, is so ridiculously bold as to say to slaves who are being abused by their masters that they've actually been called into this suffering and that they should therefore respect their master. That is not an easy teaching. 
Can we just acknowledge that for a second? Like, can we let the weight of that actually settle on our souls? Can we acknowledge what I would say is the impossibility of what the Bible teaches? And that's exactly the point. If you haven't already figured this out, what the Bible teaches Christians to do is impossible for mere human beings. We cringe over verses like this because we just look at them and we're like, that's just not even possible. Like, yeah, this Jesus guy, nice dude, but some of the stuff that the Bible says, like, it's just whack. You can't do this. That's why even the Bible gives us pictures like John chapter 6 When Jesus finishes his teaching to a large crowd of people, the Bible tells us that pretty much everybody left because they listened to what he had to to say and they thought, this sounds insane. This is is why after another one of Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples who have committed themselves to following Jesus basically cry out and they say, Jesus, what you're saying is impossible. Who can live like this, Jesus? And you know how he replies. He says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Friends, the Christian life is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. You cannot do what the text of Scripture commands you to do in your own strength. Apart from grace, you have no inherent natural human power to obey the commands of Jesus. It is impossible to love your wife like Jesus loves the church. It's impossible to follow the example of Christ's suffering. It is impossible to put to death what is earthly in you. It's impossible to rejoice in sorrow and suffering. It's impossible to love your enemy. It is impossible to walk with humility in such a way that you would be subject to your master who beats you unjustly. Don't you feel the weight of the impossibility? It is impossible to do what Jesus said when he said, deny yourself and take up your cross and basically murder your selfish desires from day to day as you follow Jesus Christ. You cannot do any of these things unless unless the Holy Spirit of God gives to you the supernatural power to obey. The teaching of the Bible in the way of Jesus, it is, it is so far beyond difficult That's why we sort of just like pretend that verses like this aren't even in the Bible. Because this is beyond difficult. It is literally impossible for those who are not filled with the Spirit of Christ. The flesh cannot please God. But for those who do have the Spirit of God, then the teaching of Jesus is in fact actually possible. You can live like this. You could be a slave called by God to be beaten and suffer unjustly and you could actually have flow from your heart love for your unjust master 
and humility that would cause you to be subject to him, even in that injustice, because the love of Christ compels you. That is possible through the Spirit of God. That's why Peter can write something as crazy as this. So again, I want you to feel the weight of these verses as we get started so that, so that you can look to Jesus to carry the burden of obedience that you cannot carry on your own. As Christians, we don't make excuses for what the Bible teaches. We don't brush it away or say, yeah, the Bible doesn't really mean that. Instead, we let the burden of obedience fall on Christ who said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And we look to Christ who gives us the strength and power that we need in order to follow him in obedience. We lean on Christ, we depend on him, and then from him flows to us the obedience that we need. Now, I want to mention a few things about slavery before we look more closely at these verses. To begin with, the Bible does not necessarily condemn slavery. Did you know that? Exodus 21 verse 16, we do find that the Bible commands the death penalty for anyone who kidnaps somebody else and steals them in order to traffic in humans and force them into slavery. So we can draw from the Old Testament that God despises the idea of stealing people and trafficking in humans. The Bible also says that anyone buying someone in slavery in a situation like that should also be executed for doing that evil. So human trafficking of that sort is forbidden by God. To steal somebody and enslave them is an abomination before God. But you need to think about this. In a world with no social safety nets like we have today, no government programs to support the poor and needy, no food stamps, none of our modern welfare programs, actually through human history, slavery was sometimes a necessary tool by which people could survive in dire circumstances. And in this sense, the Bible actually does not condemn slavery. If you could not feed yourself or feed your family, if you couldn't care for yourself or your children, then through much of human history, you could actually sell yourself into slavery. You could sell yourself to a master and you could become their property. And in exchange for the labor that you would do as their property, then they would take care of you the way that they would take care of their other property. And you would expect that somebody who owns property would take care of their property well. I think that's kind of woven into human nature. And all of this is very foreign to us in our modern age, isn't it? But the point that I'm trying to make here is that slavery... Not all slavery is outright bad. There's no verse in the Bible that straight up says that all slavery is immoral. Does that actually shock you a little bit? Obviously, the Bible does condemn cruel treatment of people. Okay, that's not acceptable. Whether they're a slave or not, God's expectation is that we would treat one another rightly. 
And so slavery that is cruel is absolutely immoral. But think about this for a second. Our situation as Christians is actually very much like the picture that Peter paints for us here. We are in a relationship of beneficial slavery with God. Do you understand that? We are not competent to care for ourselves. Given our own choice, given, given over to our own devices, what would we do? We would naturally move as humans towards self-destruction. Surrendered to our own devices, we would give ourselves over to spiritual poverty. We are spiritually bankrupt people. We would find ourselves enslaved to sin. And so here's the beautiful good news of Christianity. Is that in our spiritual poverty, we can come to Jesus and we can willingly sell ourselves into slavery to him. And he, as a good master, will care for us. Jesus has bought us out of the abusive slavery of sin so that we might be well cared for as slaves of Christ, serving in his love. And so we do serve him. And he cares for us like he cares for all of his property. Like Jesus says, your father in heaven cares for the birds and the flowers. And he cares also for you. Because all of this is God's property. And he's a good master who tends well for his property. And so don't you see, the Bible actually cannot outright condemn all forms of slavery because Christians are slaves to Christ. And we have been bought at a price out of slavery to sin so that we might be slaves under the love of God. Now back to human slavery. Although the Bible does not outright condemn it, neither does the Bible necessarily condone it as some kind of good inherently. The Bible does not say it is inherently good for some people to own other people as property, okay? In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul encourages those who are slaves, if they have the opportunity, to avail themselves of their freedom. And if you've ever read the book of Philemon in the New Testament, Philemon is a book that deals a lot with the theme of slavery, and it encourages Christian masters to see their slaves as brothers, not merely as property. And so I'm not suggesting that the Bible says that slavery is by definition good. So don't misunderstand, okay? Now, having said all of that, it's necessary, I think, that for a moment we speak to the historical American slavery that is the backdrop of the country in which we live. It inevitably influences how we think about this subject, doesn't it? America has a history of slavery that is tied up not with some kind of social welfare, but rather is connected with racism. And it's ugly. You know, in the vast majority of sort of historically documented cases, the way that slavery was practiced in America was a despicable evil. Certainly not something that pleased God. It was contrary to the teaching of Scripture. 
And in this evil form of slavery, we're not talking about slaves who willingly gave themselves over to a master in order to provide care for themselves or their family. This was not some kind of mercy to avoid poverty or starvation. We're talking about people that were kidnapped from their country of origin and were trafficked against their will. And black slaves in this condition, they were not treated with dignity like all humans should be treated with dignity because they're made in the image of God. In many cases, uh, black slaves were treated actually worse than animals. And they were not indiscriminately enslaved because of their financial status. They were often specifically chosen to become slaves because of the color of their skin. And they were often, these American slaves, treated with cruelty. They were often denied education, denied opportunities to learn to read or write. They were separated from their family members, treated more like livestock than family units the way that God designed. They were often worked without sufficient rest, and they were generally abused and mistreated. Now, in every case where these kinds of evils were done to slaves in America, we need to simply say God was greatly displeased by that kind of behavior. God was filled with wrath by the sin that was done against people made in His image. And so the stain of slavery on our nation, it's a wicked evil in the sight of God. And we should go actually even one step further in acknowledging that sometimes people who claimed to be Christians used passages like this in order to actually defend the kind of slavery that was being done in America. As if God approved of the beatings and injustice because these verses say, well, slaves, even when your master is being unjust, you should submit to them. The point of these verses is not in any way to defend the abusive behavior of a master. Rather, it is to encourage the slave to remember who their ultimate master is, right? Look beyond your circumstances and your suffering and remember Christ who suffered and God who rules over all things. Now, I want you to understand, I actually reject the premise that people who committed these acts of evil against slaves in opposition to the clear teaching of Scripture and even manipulated the text of Scripture to defend their actions, I reject the premise that those people were actually believers, that they actually had the heart of Jesus. Maybe they called themselves Christians because they went to church and had a Bible, but I reject the premise that a person who is truly converted and shares the heart of Jesus could mistreat another Christian in such a horrific way. And it's despicable that God's word would have been twisted in order to justify sin like this. But here's the really, really crazy thing. You ready? This is the thing that I suspect might make people mad and ultimately get me canceled. <laughs> Peter didn't write this last week. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. What Peter says here 
in verses 18 through 21 anticipates that in the future, slaves will be treated like this by their masters. Tragically, it would appear that slaves being mistreated by their masters has been a common issue through all of human history. And that's why Peter has to address it. He's not writing this even before, um, like right before American slavery or in the middle of American slavery or after American slavery. Peter is addressing this to all of humans through the last 2,000 years of history. Okay, here's the really scandalous part though. Still, Peter does not carve out any exceptions. Isn't that what's so crazy? Peter says, be subject to your master with all respect, even the unjust master. Period. Mic drop. End of discussion. No exceptions offered. And again, isn't the burden of these verses almost crushing? Like, don't you want to stand up and be like, but that's just, that's just unjust to the person suffering as a slave. Did you know today, there, around the world, there are estimated 50 million people in slavery? These verses would say to them that in the midst of that slavery, that they should show respect for their master. Verse 20 says that if you're beaten for doing good, this is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. And again, just feel the weight of this, because this is a life that is only possible through Jesus. And through Christ, it is actually possible. So let's look more closely at these verses for just a couple of minutes. The what of the command I've been giving you and, and spelling it out for you, it's pretty clear, I think. What is the command? Servants or slaves must be subject to their masters with all respect, not only the masters who are good and gentle, Slaves are supposed to be subject to their masters even when they're treated unjustly and even when they are beaten for doing good. And they must do this with all respect for their masters. A person who is acting in a way that does not deserve any respect is supposed to be respected by the slave. That's the what. The command then is followed by the why, and that's teased out for us in verses 19 through 21. It actually goes into verses 22 and 23, but we're going to look at that in detail next week because it deserves its own sermon. So the motivation for this kind of behavior for slaves begins in verse 19 when it says, this is a gracious thing. Now we tend to think that the word grace uh, or gracious means like kind. That's how we tend to use this word. Like if I were to say, you know, when my family was sick, it was a very gracious thing of you to cook us a meal and drop it by so that we didn't have to do that work, right? That was a gracious thing. Um, but that's not how Peter is using this word. What he means is that to endure unjust treatment by your master when you do good, to show your master all respect, that kind of living is only possible by grace. It is a gracious thing, meaning it is a thing that proceeds from grace. 
It's not a power that comes from within you. It's a power that flows to you from the grace of God. And as I've said before, grace is God's power at work in you to do what you cannot do on your own. Grace is God's power at work in you to do what you cannot do on your own. You cannot achieve redemption for your sins, and so grace is God's power to redeem you. You cannot achieve this kind of submission to an unjust master on your own, and so it is a gracious gift from God that God would lead you to live like this in the midst of your suffering. And so it's a thing of grace that we as Christians can endure mistreatment from others. To suffer abuse and injustice with humility and joy, that is only possible when your heart is captivated by the grace that you have been given in Jesus Christ. And then verse 19 goes on to tell us that our motivation for this kind of living is not because of the master who would treat us unjustly. We don't do it for the sake of the master. This person is not deserving of respect or our good deeds in response to their abuse. No, we are doing this because we are mindful of God, our heavenly master. We have set our eyes on him. He motivates us. And one of the things that we know about God from his word is that at the end of our difficult lives, God will comfort us. God will make right our sorrows. God will wipe away every tear. And God will heal every wound. He will fill with joy the scars of our sorrow so they no longer hurt. And he will set right every injustice that we have suffered in doing good. As our heavenly master, God will care for us because we are his slaves, we are his property, and he loves us. And with tenderness, after the world has done all of its wounding, God will bind us up. Look, the truth is that even if you had to suffer the most awful abuse of the worst kind of slavery for many, many years or decades or even the entirety of your life, that would still be a small price to pay for the reward that God has for you when he says, well done, good and faithful slave to you. The reward of obedience to Jesus is worth any price that could be exacted from us, including being beaten or suffering injustice. As Peter says at the end of this letter, we're going to get there, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Jesus Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Or as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You cannot even imagine the reward. Not even close. 
And there's another thing that we can say here regarding sorrow and suffering when it comes our way. If we believe, as the Bible teaches, that everything that God puts us through is because He loves us, then we can even look at our suffering and our sorrow and our pain and the injustice that we experience, and we can say that that is purposeful. It's not an accident. It's not just chance. It's not a stroke of bad luck. It is purposeful. This is part of what it means to be mindful of God in verse 19 when we think about our sorrows. If we suffer in this life, we can have confidence that it is God's intention to use that suffering for our good. Andrew Murray says it well when he writes this, In this storm, the tree strikes deeper roots in the soil. In the hurricane, the inhabitants of the house abide within and rejoice in its shelter. So by suffering, the Father would lead us to enter more deeply into the love of Christ. He does it in the hope that when we have found our rest in Christ in times of trouble, we will learn to choose abiding in Him as our only portion. So much has God set His heart on this, that though He has indeed no pleasure in affecting us, God will not keep back even the most painful chastisement. He can thereby guide his beloved child to come home and abide in the beloved son. Why would God allow a good slave to suffer the unjust abuse of a cruel master? Why would God allow a Christian to experience sorrow and pain? Why does God give to us commands in his Bible that actually increase the difficulty of our life in obedience? Why does he take us through long seasons of suffering and hardship? Well, it's in order to lead us more deeply into the love of Christ. That's why. Why should we obey the difficult commands that God gives to us in the Bible well, because we believe that they will lead us more deeply into the love of Jesus, where is found all of our joy. And at the end of verse 20, we're reminded of another wonderful truth, that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God when His beloved children endure suffering for doing good. The point here is that God is watching God sees. Do you ever feel like in your suffering and your sorrow that nobody knows? Have you ever had this experience where you go to express your grief to somebody and they immediately respond, well, yeah, I mean, I went to get in my car yesterday and I wouldn't even start and I had to like jump it in the parking lot and it was like a hundred degrees. And you're like, did you even hear what I just said to you about the suffering that I'm going through? Nobody seems to know or care or appreciate. We do not suffer alone, though. Scripture teaches our suffering is not lost to an empty, compassionless universe. No, God sees it all. All of it. Psalm 56 says, You, God, have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
And Matthew 6, verse 18, Jesus says that God who sees in secret will reward those who do good. And then finally, Peter gives us the greatest why of all in verse 21. Why should slaves do good and suffer abuse and injustice and yet then still in the midst of that be subject to their masters? Well, the greatest reason of all, we are told, is because we are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And it was Christ himself who suffered injustice and abuse when he himself had done no wrong. If you think that you are suffering unjustly, consider the passion of Christ. Consider the suffering of Jesus. And why did he endure that suffering? He did it for you. That's why he went through that, for our sake, so that we might receive the blessing of his love. Jesus entrusted himself to the love of the Father in the face of abuse and injustice in order to do the will of God, and it took him straight through sorrow and suffering. And we are called to follow him there. First through abuse and sorrow, and then after the abuse and the sorrow that is temporal, forever into everlasting joy, where the reward of eternal life has been prepared for those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And this brings us then to our application. You know, none of us in this room are slaves And as far as I know, none of us in this room are masters of slaves. You shouldn't be. So then, like, what does this mean for us? Uh, We might wonder how a text like this applies. Where do we fit in these verses if we are neither a slave owner nor a slave? Well, that's where, again, I want to remind you that you actually are a slave. And that's where you should apply these verses then. You know, at many times we may be tempted to look at God who is our master and we may be tempted to believe a lie that he is not a good master. He does not deserve our respect because of the hardship that we are going through. We are enduring sorrow, enduring sorrow and suffering. And so then we may look at God, our master, and say, you know, what kind of God is this? He's not good, he's not gentle. He's not kind to me. We may sometimes feel as if his treatment of us is unjust. And we may think that when we do good, this God, our master, repays our good good conduct with even more trials and hardship and difficulty. Have you ever thought that way? Well, those are lies. And they're meant to tempt us into rebellion and into disobedience, to drive us away from God. Yes, as our master, God demands much from us. Actually, probably way more than you think. God demands it all from you. And he often will then call you in great demand into sorrow and suffering. He commands us to love unlovable people. God commands us to give our hearts away generously. To give of ourselves so that it hurts, self-sacrificially. 
God commands us to be humble and selfless. He demands that we lay down our own lives for the sake of others and that we trust him with all of our hearts. And the application in the face of all of that, of these verses, is that we would submit to God our master with all respect. We do as he commands and we do not complain against him as we do. We do not doubt his goodness or his love for us in the midst of the hardship. We follow where he leads with trust and obedience. We allow this God to direct our lives in whatever direction he would choose for us. And the amazing truth that's spelled out for us in verse 21 as we think about this application is not that God just sits in the heavens demanding these things and decreeing them from on high, but that our God became flesh to go before us. Christ, our teacher, has done ahead of us everything that we are commanded to do in following him. He calls us into suffering because he himself suffered. He beckons us onward into holiness because he has made a path for us. He tells us to submit to the will of God because he gave himself up to the cross, which was God's will for him. And because Christ then has done the impossible, and because he is our master, then we boldly follow him in obedience the obedience which he has now made possible. Let's pray. God, I pray first that you would, you would actually just, just crush us with the weight of your word. That you would bring us to an end of ourselves. That we would, that we would look at what scripture teaches like slaves, obey your masters and respect them. And, and we would just feel undone. That we would say, this is, this is impossible. It is beyond me. And God, I pray that under that, that crushing weight of obedience, then that we would find the joyful release of Christ's work for us that we would realize that he has gone before us, that he has finished the difficult work, and that we are now free to follow in obedience. And I pray that in that relief would just come joy and peace and hope for us. And that then we would set all of our heart and all of our mind upon following in the footsteps of Christ who has gone before us, who has redeemed us, who has made a way, who loves us. And we would set our eyes on the hope that is before us. God, would you give us that grace in Christ's name. Amen.